The difference between happiness and Christian joy. Happiness is the procurement of present circumstances, favorable circumstances. Christian joy is absolute certainty of future glory. Welcome to Tell Podcasts. You're listening to encouraging words from Pastor James, bringing you truth and peace through God's word. In this episode, we talk about joy, true Christian joy. What is it and where does it come from? Think, evaluate, learn, lead. T-E-L-L. Tell. Now here's Pastor James showing us what justification brings. Thanks for listening. Tonight's message comes from Romans chapter 5. We're going to look tonight at verses 1 through 11 to see four things that this teaching of justification in the Bible brings into our lives. Here the Apostle Paul writes, therefore, on the basis of everything we've looked at in the first four chapters, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. This is God's word. If you notice the very first word that Paul starts out our lesson with, it's therefore. And this is one of those things that's really easy when you just read right past, uh, when you're reading through the Bible. But that is actually a big transition point uh, in Paul's letter. Um, So you you can actually see grammatically he's trying to say, I'm having a shift in thought here. And for the first four chapters, for a pretty long time in Romans, the Apostle Paul again and again and again is going through this concept of what's called justification. Justification is this idea that you are declared by God to be not guilty of your sins, even though you are guilty of your sins. In the divine courtroom of God, because Jesus has paid for your sins, God declares you not guilty. Um, It it means that salvation comes by grace through faith, not by performance, not by pedigree. And believe it or not, this is a brand new thought in all of world history. There There was never a worldview, there was never a religion that offered that idea. Every kind of, every form of salvation came through works performance. Be good enough and maybe God will love, accept, and bless you. Up until this point, the gospel is a new thought in the world. But what Paul is doing is he's saying, look, There's implications attached to that for you. 
And he, again, marks that kind of from a language standpoint, he marks it because in the first four chapters, he uses the word faith, the thing through which you are saved. He uses that 35 times. And then in the next four chapters, chapters five to eight, he only uses the word faith three times. Uh, But he uses the word life only two times in the first four chapters, but in verses, chapters five to eight, he uses it 24 times. So very clearly he's saying justification, faith, therefore life. And what the Apostle Paul is trying to tell you here is justification makes a difference. Justification makes a difference for your life, not just your eternal life, it makes a difference for your life even right now. And um, you know, if you believe Jesus' substitutionary atonement, his death for your sins on the cross, if you believe the gift of his righteousness for you, yes, of course that changes your eternal welfare. You've heard that your entire lives and that's absolutely true and it's spectacular and it's important. What Christians sometimes have a little more difficult making a connection with is that doesn't just mean, okay, I'll do whatever for the next 70, 80 years until I get to paradise. It means it changes everything for you today, right now, too. And um, that's what we're getting to because that's what Paul's getting here to today. What are the present benefits, the day-to-day benefits that come from knowing you are declared not guilty of your sins and, and, and you have been justified through the grace of Jesus Christ? I see four of them in the text. I'm going to break it down into four points that justification brings and hopefully this clarifies. It doesn't make it more confusing. But in parentheses, behind each point, I'm going to say it's the, it's the antidote to this problem that you face in life. Okay, so it'll make sense as I go on here. First point, justification brings peace with God, and that means the gospel is the antidote to any guilt that you experience in life. Paul says justification brings hope for future glory. That is the antidote to any uh, present troubles that you face and being overwhelmed by those. Justification brings glory in all of our suffering, which brings meaning into that suffering. It's the antidote to meaninglessness in life. And finally, justification brings an understanding of what true love is, God's love is, which is an antidote to the the love that hurts in this world, the love that's cheap in this world, or what we'll call kind of consumeristic type of love, okay? So peace with God is what we see in verse one. Hope for future glory, verse two. Glory and suffering, that's verses three to four. And an understanding, an actual understanding of love, which is verse eight. Here we go. First of all, peace with God. The Apostle Paul says, therefore, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's saying the gospel is the antidote to the guilt that we face in life. Now, what's guilt, though? If I asked you individually, each for a definition of guilt here today, I can nearly guarantee that 95% or more of people would probably tell me a definition of guilt that is something about negative feelings. And that's probably the definition that I would have given for the good majority of my life. And it wasn't until I was at seminary where we were studying through some hymn verses and I realized that my entire life up until this point, every hymn that we sang that used the word guilt, I was thinking about it only in terms of guilty feelings, negative feelings. Now that is an aspect to guilt. Uh, And that's the way most modern people tend to think about guilt. And, And maybe the only modern person that it registers guilt differently is somebody who is literally a criminal standing in a courtroom and the judge declares them to be guilty of a crime that they have committed. At that point, the judge is not declaring them to have negative feelings over anything. The judge is declaring that they have done something very wrong and they are guilty of a crime. Uh, This is also by the reason, uh, by the way, part of the reason why so much modern psychotherapy and counseling, I mean, the, the end goal of most of it is to relieve the sufferer 
of their symptoms, to relieve an individual of guilty feelings. Now, um, part of the reason for that is because uh, guilt has both an objective quality and a subjective quality. But you, the, the counselor in his or her office can't just get rid of all the wrongdoing that's been done. So the only thing they can do is try to alleviate the symptoms and feelings of wrongdoing. And that's actually, I mean, it's necessary, but in some ways it's dangerous to only get rid of the feelings. And most counselors properly identify that underneath the anger that most people have, underneath the anxiety that most people have, underneath the uh, perfectionism and the bitterness and the hypersensitivity to other people's criticism and underneath uh, all of those kinds of struggles, underneath all of it is this thing called guilt. This feeling that I'm not quite good enough. This feeling that I'm not quite what I was supposed to be. That's called guilt. In fact, uh, Freud's great contribution to the world, most modern therapists don't fully embrace uh, a lot of Freud's theories, but Freud's big contribution into the world was the idea that if you provide uh, somebody with an impartial, uh, non-judgmental dialogue partner, they will be much more inclined to speak candidly about what they're feeling and what they're thinking, and that when people are willing to do that, uh, they actually discover a lot of truths about themselves. So it's very helpful in diagnosing issues. The problem is, the problem with a lot of that kind of uh, therapy is the attempt to remove guilty feelings without ever actually reconciling the, the cause for the guilt. Uh, and the problem with that is guilt is actually very necessary. We don't like it, we don't enjoy it, but guilty feelings are necessary. A society can't function without guilt. Um, People need to, even though your consciences can be misguided on feeling guilty over whatever thing, in generally speaking, guilty feelings point to guilty behavior. And without the concept of guilt, we end up like consciousless, uh, aggressive animals. Let me put it like this. Um, some of you remember about 20, 25 years ago was a, a, a movie that won a bunch of Academy Awards, uh, Schindler's List. Liam Neeson. Uh, stars as Schindler, who is a, uh, he's a war profiteer during World War II. He's a wealthy German industrialist. Uh, he's a member of the Nazi party. He's a war profiteer. But he has a change of heart during the course of the movie. And he, he's very wealthy. He gives away all of his money. He sells all of his, in, in order to bribe German officials to let Jewish individuals go and escape from death. And... Um, you know, it's the right thing to do, but he's, he has this kind of crisis of conscience in the whole thing because he wishes he would have done it sooner. And actually, you know, his, the, his workers are all very uh, proud of him and they recognize the nobility of the behavior and they, they present him with this statement and there's this engraved Talmudic quotation that says, whoever saves one life saves the, the world entire. And at that moment, Schindler is both touched and a little bit ashamed because as he's going away, he looks at his car and he realizes, you know what, I could have sold my car. I could have had a little bit more money if I would have sold my car and if I had a little bit more money, if I would have sold that car, I could have saved, I could have bribed those officials and maybe saved another five to 10 lives. And then you see him sort of sobbing at the good that he could have done but he didn't do. Um, he's weighed down by guilt. Now, my question for you, I think it's a fascinating little thought experiment, is what would modern psychotherapy say to Schindler? How would they get rid of his guilt? Would, would you say to, to Schindler, you know, Mr. Schindler, you have unrealistic expectations of yourself. Don't worry about those 10 individuals whose lives you could have saved. 
would it say something like, you know, Mr. Schindler, um, cut yourself some slack. Your family and your culture has conditioned you uh, to believe that Jews were lesser forms of the human race and therefore tossing them into ovens was no big deal. And uh, consequently, the reason you didn't act sooner is because you simply didn't know uh, any better. You know, it, it's, it, your, your parents conditioned you to think that way. Your society conditioned you to think that way. It's your father's fault. Um, would counseling today say, you know, guilt is just an unhealthy, culturally conditioned unproductive emotion. I've certainly heard that one before. Guilt, it does, it's unproductive, it's unhealthy, it's not necessary. It's, you know, I think most of us understand that there's, there's a little bit of nonsense in there because guilt is a real thing and guilt is valid for every human being and guilt needs to be dealt with, not just dismissed or rationalized away. And so what do you do with guilt? The only person in human history that really knew what to do about it was our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who died to pay for all of our guilt. And see, what that does is it objectively takes care of the guilt of wrongdoing before God, but it subjectively makes us okay. Uh, It gets rid of the guilty feelings because we know that everything necessary for us has been taken care of. Uh, Last fall, I got a chance to reread a book that I hadn't read probably since high school. And in high school, you don't process some of these things, Uh, but one of the top five to ten probably Christian most influential works of all time is called Pilgrim's Progress by a guy named John Bunyan. And it's a a very kind of on-the-nose allegory, like the main character is literally named Christian, and the journey that Christian is on is the journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city on top of Mount Zion. And Christian, while he's on this journey, he's, his big problem, or one of his big problems, is he's bearing this weight of guilt, like this burden that's on his back and on his shoulders, and it's just weighing him down, and it's ruining his life. And along the way, he tries to get some advice on what to do with it, and he, he runs into this guy whose name is Mr. Legality, which, again, it's kind of on a nose. But Mr. Legality says, in order to get rid of your guilt, what you should do is you should climb this mountain I know of called Mount Morality, and that'll get rid of your guilt. So Christian, you know, of course, tries it, and as he climbs Mount Morality, he notices that not only does his guilt not go away, uh, but that he gets more pressure and the burden becomes heavier and heavier as he goes up the mountain. He realizes that doesn't work. Morality doesn't get rid of guilt. So he keeps on uh, trekking through the journey, and eventually he comes to another hill. And on top of that hill, there's a cross, and at the bottom of that hill, he notices that there is a grave. And he looks up and starts examining the cross on the top of the hill and he notices that he immediately starts to feel relief. And he notices that the guilt that was on his shoulders weighing him down starts to roll down off his back, roll down the hill, roll into the grave, and it's locked in there forever. And he's shocked because he thought that in order to relieve the guilt, it would involve the climbing. But he realized that to relieve the guilt, it didn't involve his climbing, it involved his looking at somebody else doing the climbing up a cross for him. He's shocked by this, and actually, uh, as he continues to examine the cross, tears start to roll down his face, and he starts to jump for joy, and he actually bursts into a song where he sings, blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed rather be, the man that there was put to shame for me. And the point is fairly obvious. What John Bunyan is saying is, uh, look, if, if if you are a Christian, 
and you have never had tears roll down your face, not because of how bad you feel over the wrong stuff that you've done, but because of how much you know you have been forgiven and the guilt that has rolled down off your shoulders. If you haven't had tears roll down your face for that reason, if you have not yet jumped for joy for that reason, you haven't looked at the cross long enough. You haven't looked at the cross hard enough until those tears start rolling, until until that guilt starts falling away. Okay, so justification brings peace. Second thing justification brings, it brings hope for future glory. And points two and three are, are, go together. There's, they're distinct, but they overlap quite a bit. So I'll kind of bring them together here. Paul says in verse two, therefore we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. You know, I would say 98% of the counseling that I've done uh, in ministry is about present discomfort. And that's part of the issue. There's an obsession with the present. Humans get obsessed with the present. Uh, In fact, one of the interesting recurring themes that happens in the Gospels is Jesus trying to minister and call to people uh, who won't come to him, not because they're just unattracted to him, but because they're so obsessed with their present. So for instance, you have the rich young ruler that Jesus, that wants to follow Jesus. But he says, yeah, go and sell all your possessions, give it, and then come and follow me. And he can't do it because the present temporal pleasures of life are too much for him. And then in Luke 9, three times in a row, Jesus calls to somebody and says, come and follow me. Three different individuals. And they say, well, yeah, I'd like to, but I can't. I can't because I got to go bury my father. I can't because uh, I got to go say goodbye to my family. I can't because I got business affairs to attend to. Then I'll come and follow you. They're obsessed with the present. Uh, in, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus gives a parable about a wedding banquet where they go out and invite people, all sorts of people to come on in and experience this eternal majestic banquet. And people are like, well, but I can't because I got to work in the fields and I got to do this and that. There is an absolute obsession. It's not that they are hostile towards Jesus. It's not that they are unattracted to Jesus. It's that they are distracted by the stuff going on in their lives that is pressing on them so hard that it's preventing them from being all in in following Christ and discipleship. Now, the interesting thing I know with humans is that we understand this is a problem for our kids. Most adults I know don't understand this is a problem in themselves. So for instance, with kids, we understand this idea that obsession with the present and an unwillingness to sacrifice for the future, it's one of the key metrics uh, to maturity and future wellness. This is the whole uh, if you've ever heard of the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment, uh, it's an experiment about delayed gratification. It's one of the most famous uh, behavioral experiments. You can look it up later. But it's, it's, it's about delayed gratification. We understand that in kids, that is enormously important to their maturity and their future wellness. It also overlaps very nicely with a Christian worldview. An eternal perspective is one of the key metrics for spiritual maturity in Christians. And, and I might put it differently like this. Christian glory differs from this world's glory in the same way that joy differs from happiness. You understand? You have a working understanding of the difference between those two? Happiness is the procuring of favorable circumstances in your present. Present. Um, Present good circumstances. I was reading an article a little while ago that linked to a website that's just called happiness.com and it's got its own app and all that stuff and it's like the secrets. I've watched several documentaries in the past couple years. It seems like this is a thing now. People saying, how do I find true happiness? Because my basic needs are met and yet I still can't seem to be happy. 
And at that website, there's actually a post, a blog post, that gives these five points. And I was on board for the first four, and then they lost me at five. But the first four points, uh, keys to happiness are, number one, basic provisions for your lives are met. Okay, that makes sense. It's hard to be content if you don't have clothes or food or shelter. Uh, Basic life needs. Number two, get enough sleep. Three, meaningful relationships. Four, demonstrate compassion to others. The fifth one is where they lost me. It says, to be happy, you have to perform work that really interests and engages you. And you might say, what's wrong with that? Shouldn't, isn't, that isn't that a key to happiness? Well, you realize how pampered and modern Western person that sounds? Perform work that totally interests you. There was a comparative religious scholar in the 20th century by the name of Joseph Campbell who sort of famously said, follow your bliss. And that is exactly a mantra of young individuals in the 21st century. That in order to be myself, in order to be truly happy, I have to follow my bliss. Now, do you understand how absurd that is for most people in world history? Uh, To say to a medieval peasant, you know what? To find true contentment, happiness, and joy in life, you just need to follow your bliss. Uh, To say to a young teenage girl growing up in communist China or the Soviet Union, uh, you know what, you just, in order to be happy, you just need to to find some work that really interests you and really engages you. And then you'll experience total life happiness and joy. Not only do I think it's inaccurate, I think it's actually a cruel kind of worldview. In fact, some of you heard me say before, even if somehow you were able to attain perfectly happy circumstances in your life by which you could say, my health, my wealth, my relationships, my career trajectory, it's all exactly where I want them to be. I'm totally happy all the time. You know what you call somebody who is happy themselves all the time, despite the fact that around them, other people are suffering, oppressed, uh, hurt, uh, dying, diseased, The person who's totally okay strutting around being happy all the time when other people are suffering, that person by definition is a sociopath. And therefore what I'd say is the modern 21st century approach to happiness, it's not only inaccurate, it's destructive. The difference between happiness and Christian joy, happiness is the procurement of present circumstances, favorable circumstances. Christian joy is absolute certainty of future glory. Delayed glory. Um, in fact, I was, I was talking to Pastor Lyra uh, earlier this week, and he asked me how my family vacation went last week. And last week, um, so actually Friday was supposed to be my parents' 50th wedding anniversary. And some of you know my dad got cancer in spring and passed away pretty quickly. And um, we were hoping that he was going to be able to make it until... Uh, the summer vacation, because every five years or so we, we rent a cabin and the whole family gets together, all the kids, and, and, and um, but Lord had other plans and he was called home and I wasn't sure I still wanted to go on the vacation, to be honest. I didn't want to go through like a second funeral kind of situation and so I, I wasn't really looking forward to it and Pastor Lyra knew that, we had talked about it before and he asked me, so how was it? Was it really tough? And I said, you know, it wasn't. And it's not because we don't miss my dad. My, I certainly miss my, my mom certainly misses my dad. But there wasn't a gaping hole in the gathering. And we were talking about it and we said, that's kind of one of the marks of a distinct like Christian family is this idea that, um, you know, if, if this life is all there is, 
I don't think we could have done anything on that vacation except reminisce and long for days that had gone by. But because every single person in that cabin was completely convinced, completely confident that we're going to see him again not in a not too distant future, we were able to actually spend our time and energy making new memories. And it was interesting, one of the things that my mom said after uh, my dad's funeral, a couple days later, is she said she woke up and wanna, she had this warm and beautiful thought, this idea that, that uh, helps her get through the day, that dad is not only with Jesus, which is spectacular in and of itself, but my mom actually lost a, a son between my brother and my older sister, and she named him Joey. And she said, the idea that dad, for the first time, really gets to be with not only Jesus, but Joey now. And uh, they're vacationing there, and you know what? We vacation here, and we're eventually going to be able to meet up with them very soon and share our stories and memories with one another. Because of God's grace, because of Jesus' resurrection, justification means that we can boast about future glory. And it's not that we always like the worldly circumstances. It's that the gospel gives us a trump card and a power over all those earthly circumstances, whether we like them or not. And um, I said points two and three are very close together. Hope for future glory, it also brings glory in our suffering. And the Apostle Paul says in verses three and four, we also glory uh, in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. If this world is all there is, and a lot has been written about this, if this world is all there is, uh, then the only goal really of life is to gain as much glory and comfort and success and pleasure and squeeze as much out of this life as you can possibly do. And when the inevitable sufferings of life, when the overwhelming pain that comes in life, and it comes in every life, when it inevitably comes, not only does it rob you of your comfort, it robs you of your life meaning, and then it's doubly devastating. But if this life is actually more like a maybe 70 or 80 year vestibule entering into eternity, then when you experience suffering, it actually assists you in carrying out your life goal, which is to glorify the God who has justified you into eternal paradise. It's not that you can even glorify God in your suffering, it's that you can especially glorify God in your suffering because as God, in his divine wisdom, sometimes allows some of the things that make us happy to burn away in life. If you remain joyful at that time, your witness gets that much brighter. This makes a little bit more sense if you sort of reverse engineer it here, but look what the Apostle Paul says is the end goal for a Christian who understands what justification really means. He says, if you're a Christian who gets justification, you are going to be what? The end thing is hopeful. Now, what is hope? Hope is certainty of positive future circumstances. Now, the only reason you'd be obsessed with future circumstances is if the present circumstances weren't always all that great. The only reason you'd be absolutely certain is if you're that confident in somebody that you trust on the basis of their track record to give you a positive future. Uh, so in other words, he refers to that as character. The only person who demonstrates uh, hope is the person who has Christian character. Character is evidence that somebody is rightly aligned with the promises of God, that they totally buy the promises that God has made to them. Now, the only way you can demonstrate character is if you have persevered. Perseverance is a, a, a fight, a patience, a grit, 
when things aren't the way that you want them to be. And the only way that you can show perseverance is if you're going through some suffering. So if you follow what Paul's saying here, each point is like a click beneath the one before. When you are in rough circumstances and you still demonstrate hope, when you are suffering and you are still hopeful, you're certain of positive, future, favorable circumstances, it's like lighter fluid being squirted onto the campfire of your faith in life. The world feels your heat that much more. The world sees your light that much more. The world knows your God that much better. And at that point, you're actually demonstrating hope in the midst of suffering. You are, the glory of God is showing in you and the glory of God is showing through you. And that actually is what we're trying to do in the 70 or 80 years that we might get here. See, it helps you with your life meaning. Final point. Justification also brings an understanding of love that this world doesn't fully appreciate. In fact, I would say the default in this world is consumer love. Uh, Paul says in verse eight, therefore we know God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, this is important, before we had any intentions of coming to him, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, one final quick story. When I was back in high school, I had a girlfriend for a couple months my senior year, believe it or not. And uh, I, I liked her a lot. And long story short, while we were dating, after about two months, she ended up kissing one of my close friends. Uh, they had gone to the movies together and I found out about it through a per like third party and I was absolutely devastated. And I remember, you know, I don't think I thought this through the details through at the time, but I remember what I felt and I remember feeling like, you know, I wasn't enough. So in other words, uh, she must have found a guy that she thought was more attractive, uh, who was funnier, who was more talented, who was smarter, who was, uh, he wasn't smarter. I knew the guy pretty well. <laughs> so just kidding. But uh, you understand what I'm saying? In every way, she found, she, all I could feel is she must have found a guy who was just better. And that's the way consumers work. Because, you know, if you take it not in terms of human relationships, but in terms of products, when you find a product out there that is cheaper, it's more durable, uh, it's more convenient for you, it's more appealing to you, you move on to that product. And unfortunately, humans sometimes operate that way in their relationships. And you know what? I think it, in a competitive market of capitalism, Okay, I get it, and I think it makes sense economically, but it absolutely will crush your heart. And I remember feeling at the time, it's, it can't, it, it's not supposed to be like this. Love is, it can't work like this. Affection is not supposed to work this way. And I'm certainly not saying that dating is wrong or that breaking up with somebody is wrong and sometimes it's totally necessary and everything. What I'm saying is that deep down inside, anybody who has certainly gone through that experience, you intuitively, deep down, you know you're built for a non-conditional, non-consumer type of love that this world can't completely offer. And what the gospel says is that's the exact kind of love that God offers to you. Um, and in the most amazing way, while we were still sinners, when everything about us was thoroughly unlovable, God loved us. When everything about us, you know, we didn't have any good intentions, let alone any good works to our name, God loved us. Uh, when we were completely distracted 
by the good looks of the world. And we were out there kissing other guys and kissing other gods. God loved us in such a self-sacrificial way that Jesus died to reconcile the relationship, to make the relationship work through his own sacrifice. No one is ever gonna love you quite like that. And Jesus can't not love you like that. And to the degree that you know that, you actually start transforming and loving others that exact same way too. Let's close with prayer and ask God to help us do just that. Lord Jesus, we know, we've been taught, many of us, since we were kids, that this justification thing, it changes our eternity without question. Today what we're asking that you help us see is that this grace uh, given to us in justification, it, it gives us every other blessing we need in life too. It gives us peace, it gives us confidence, it gives us meaning, it gives us love. Help us to understand that a little bit better today and may we grow to your glory. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks again for listening to Tell Podcasts. Tell's mission is simple, teaching you the real gospel so you can teach others. Remember, truth brings peace. For more about Tell, visit us on Facebook or at tellnetwork.org.